Today on the Bio Audio Podcast, one of my favorite things to do, have my former students help me out. He's known as the question guy. He asks a dozen questions a week. And today I'm going to flip the tables on him and make him answer them for me. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Christian Nakla. I'm a third year environmental biology major studying at York University. Last episode of this podcast that aired is about species concepts. And one of the other professors and I talked about the problems of species concepts. And one of the things that came up over and over in that discussion was the idea of an isolating barrier. Why don't you tell us, Christian, what do we mean by isolating barriers when we're talking about species concepts? So when we talk about species concepts and related concepts such as speciation, an isolating barrier is something that keeps one population from breeding, producing offspring with another similar population. It's like the actual mechanism of isolating them. For the most part, this is usually in the context of the biological species concept that we use this, which was introduced by Ernest Mayer, of course. Um, and this definition of a species that he provided describes groups of individuals who can breed within the group, but are isolated from other such groups. So under that particular concept, the key really is isolation of a reproducing group. It's something that prevents mating from actually happening or being successful. It's a factor that's helping maintain the integrity of some sort of biological entity's gene pool. It keeps them separate. How do we classify isolating barriers? We can really classify isolating barriers into two main mechanisms. So there are the pre-mating barriers, uh, and these are barriers that will prevent mating from even starting in the first place before uh, fertilization of gametes even occurs. Then we have post-mating barriers, and these are barriers that prevent the success of reproductive attempts after mating has occurred. So after we have fertilization of our gametes. Okay, let's start with the first category. Tell me about pre-mating barriers. What are these? So there are a couple of different pre-mating barriers. Most of these we can also call prezygotic barriers because it's happening before the formation of a zygote, before the formation of a new individual produced uh, through sexual reproduction. The first is behavioral isolation. This includes behavioral uniqueness of different species that keeps them separate. Different behaviors in different species or populations may make it very unlikely that two species or populations would interact or even mate with each other. You can think of an example here as being bird songs. Male birds sing to attract a mate. Um, and females usually recognize the songs of males from their own species, but they won't necessarily recognize songs from an auxiliary species. These females won't respond to the calls of males from different species. This behavioral response or lack of response is what is actually keeping them apart, keeping them from mating with one another. Another type of prezygotic or pre-mating barriers is a spatial isolation. So this is where we have isolation of populations or species in space. For example, consider some insects that prefer different foods. They may live together, but because they spend most of their time foraging on different food plants, it's extremely unlikely that they would run into each other. And taken to an extreme, 
there are populations that live in different forest fragments entirely or entirely different habitats. This means that they're, they, they have different ecological niches. They're going to be separated um, and they won't be able to reproduce naturally in the wild. So they're never going to encounter each other. They're just in different places and they just never run into each other. So there's never any test of this barrier. Exactly. So that's behavioral isolation and spatial isolation. What other kinds of isolation can we find before mating attempts? We often think of spatial isolation as being one that we can easily visualize, but something that's a little can be a little bit tricky to wrap your head around is temporal isolation. So instead of there being some sort of isolating mechanism through space, we actually have organisms, populations, species occurring at different times. You might have populations which mate in different seasons, so they're out of sync with each other. And in, in the case of mating, where mating is separated, uh, if we take, for an example, where males are producing gametes, only females of their own species are capable of being fertilized by the males. We see this uh, quite often in things like marine corals, actually. They can be out of sync for a few hours. So we might have two species of marine corals uh, in the same location, but one marine coral will emit gametes into the water. And this release of sperm will be, it'll be triggered by some environmental cue. Over this short period of time, mating within the same species can happen, but afterwards, the gametes can very easily dilute in the water. This means that there is another species that's living in the same space that is uh, reproductively receptive at a later time. Now these gametes might be so diffuse in the environment that there isn't enough to achieve effective fertilization in the other species. So what you're saying is that the dilution effect can happen over very short spaces of time in these environments so that say species one releases gametes, even a few hours later, they're so dilute that if another species was to become reproductively available, the first one's gametes are effectively not part of the system anymore. They've diluted and drifted away so that a new species, even if triggered within a few hours, might not be able to mate because the gametes have just disappeared. Exactly. And uh, often a lot of these different species are under intense selective pressures to maintain uh, a very strict temporal frame where they only release their gametes into the environment at the exact same time. Any variance will obviously lead to an inability to reproduce if we have gamete dilution that occurs relatively quickly. And so this means that there will be strong selection for both of them will release them at the exact same time. Okay, what about the last one on the that I sort of have on my list, mechanical isolation? How does that work? So mechanical isolation usually involves some physiological or anatomical feature of an organism. This includes actual structures that are involved in reproduction. One really common example that's cited a lot is ducks, uh, also in some insects, but uh, you'll hear a lot of uh, examples from ducks. In this case, the fertilization organ, usually that's a penis, is a morphological adaptation to reproduction with members of the same species. In ducks, uh, the, the penis is coiled in a certain direction, and the female's uh, reproductive tract will be receptive to that uh, orientation. This means that the male will only be able to copulate with the female of the same species. It's kind of like a lock and key 
model where you have uh, a specific key that is supposed to fit a lock. If they don't fit, you're not going to be able to open the door. Without the correct morphological fit, there can be no mating attempt. Okay, but let's say these things fail. We've got you've had you've gone through you know, these lock and key morphological mechanisms and spatial isolation and temporal isolation and behavioral isolation, but mistakes happen. Let's say the barrier fails. What happens if there is a mating attempt? What barriers would be called post-mating barriers? So post-mating barriers are those barriers that prevent uh, successful hybrids from being produced after mating has successfully occurred. So the first kind of post-mating but pre-zygotic barrier is called genomic incompatibility. Uh, this kind of is kind of in the middle between pre and post zygotic because you do have, you know, you do have a, a successful mating attempt, but there hasn't been fertilization of the sperm with the egg. There hasn't been that fusion. So this is genomic incompatibility. Uh, the sperm is transferred to the female reproductive tract, but for the, whatever reason, the egg is not fertilized. This could be due to uh, some sort of molecular incompatibility between sperm and the egg. Uh, there's there might not be any recognition between the two cells. Um, there also might be some sort of both sperm and egg don't have the same genomic structure. They don't have the same uh, chromosomes or the chromosomes aren't aligned correctly. So this could mean that the egg effectively does not get fertilized by sperm. So all of this is just failure of fertilization. Okay, so that's a post-mating prezygotic barrier. What if you actually do fertilize an egg successfully, what can happen after that? Now we're talking about the true post-zygotic barriers, the earliest of which being zygotic failure. In this case, there is fertilization. The sperm successfully fertilizes the egg, but for whatever reason, development of the zygote fails at some point before birth. So in this case, fertilization happens. Uh, the sperm will enter the egg cell, but development fails at some point. It may be unclear why development fails, but there is no further development. The zygote essentially will uh, die before maturing. Okay, so let's say we get some cell division. It does begin to develop. What would be the next sort of in sequence of things that can fail? Next in the sequence is hybrid and viability. In this case, an embryo forms and does start to develop, but it is actually unlikely that the offspring is born alive and it has very low viability. The, uh, then there are cases where hybrid offspring are born and they can do quite well. Uh, they may have very good survival. Sometimes we can even see them as being very successful, strong, able to access resources, able to compete effectively, uh, but they're actually sterile. They can't reproduce. This is often seen with a lot of different um, hybrids. They can never go on to have offspring. So their evolutionary fitness is zero. So remember that fitness has components of survival and reproduction of an individual. If you have one but not the other, your fitness is effectively zero. Okay, so what if we get to the cases then where there are hybrids and they're growing and they mate and they do produce some offspring, so they have some level of actual fitness. What can happen at this stage to still sort of keep the populations apart? So finally, we have a pretty intriguing process called hybrid breakdown. So in this case, hybrids are formed and do have some sort of fitness. They're able to produce offspring, but 
if the hybrids back cross into the parental populations, those next offspring generations might have reduced viability or fitness. So the first parental hybrids might have higher fitness than their than their offspring when they back cross into either parental populations. But these grandchildren hi hybrids don't do as well over the course of several uh, several generations. So there is a much longer term fitness cost in investing into these hybrids. Okay, so there can be many stages and many timelines under which you see sort of this hybrid problem and fitness barriers coming up, even if it takes several generations for it to happen. How do these isolating barriers actually contribute to speciation then? How do we end up with cases where we have populations dividing? There are a number of different modes of speciation that are generally discussed along with such uh, isolation barriers. For example, spatial barriers would contribute to what we call allopatry. Now, what all allopatric speciation is when there we have two populations that are physically separated by some barrier, such as a vicariant river cutting a population in half. That's a spatial barrier. We can also have allopatric speciation where there is some sort of dispersal event. In the case where there is a founding population that establishes a new colonial population elsewhere in a different geographical setting than a source population, this can lead to allopatry because we have two populations that are in different spaces and therefore they can't reproduce. That, that's a spatial barrier. Now there is a special form of allopatric spe speciation called peripatric speciation. That's spelled with an I in the middle. Peripatric speciation is very similar to allopatric speciation, but really applies to cases where the split is extremely uneven. Uh, in allopatric speciation, that's where we have one population that's split into two relatively equal halves. In peripatric speciation, this is where we have one population one very large source population with a small fragmented subpopulation that becomes spatially separated. One tiny population and one really large population. It, the most obvious example of this might be a small group of individuals trapped on an island away from the main population. Uh, a good way to remember the word peripatric is that peripatric has an I in it for island. You can think of that small population as being an island population, very small relative to the larger source population. Okay, so these are both then really using spatial isolation barriers for whatever reason, they're spatially separated. And that's, you know, that is an obvious reproductive isolating barrier in there. What kind of speciation happens when populations are in contact? So they haven't got that spatial isolation factor. There's an interesting mode of speciation when populations actually touch, and this is called parapatric speciation. This kind of sounds similar to peripatric speciation, but it's uh, instead spelled with an A in the middle instead of that I. So in peripatric speciation, this is where you have a population that is spread over some sort of ecological gradient, like up a mountainside. This environmental gradient means that there are differences in environmental conditions. The environment is changing with space. It might get colder and drier going up the mountain, if you have some population of something that can't move very well, like grasses, they can become locally adapted to this environmental gradient. The populations are more or less continuous, but they start to become isolated, probably because of some combination of hybrid breakdown. At an extreme, they might uh, fracture into many populations that speciate uh, with adaptations to the local environment. 
And this is called parapatric speciation, or sometimes called clinal speciation, because of that geographic cline of a local environmental variation. A cline is any sort of uh, trait within a population that varies over space, that varies of over uh, some sort of environmental gradient or difference in environmental conditions throughout a population's geographic range. How would you test for this sort of population climb to see if it's really locally adapted. We can often test for these sorts of local adaptations by translocation experiments. So we can move some of the individuals with certain traits up and down an environmental gradient to see if they can survive and reproduce in the novel environments. So for example, if we take our grasses from the mountainside, say we have some very short ones uh, that are found further up on the mountain because we generally have uh, colder conditions. This means that we'll have uh, lower physiological rates and we're able to incorporate less biomass. If we take these smaller grasses and move them down the range, now closer to a basal elevation of the mountain, if we move them down the mountain, we could test to see if their fitness, so their survival and reproductive components are different in these novel environments. Okay, so we've got now speciation happening sort of in allopatry, where stuff is spatially separated, and that kind of easy to conceptually understand that they're not going to meet each other and therefore they don't reproduce, and over time they're going to become different. We've got speciation along some environmental gradient where you can sort of understand local adaptations causing populations to become more separate, even if they physically connect in places. What if they live together all the time? Can they speciate? when they're not spatially or environmentally separated? They actually can. And uh, this is what we usually call sympatric speciation. This is something that you'll usually see in textbooks. And this is when we have a population speciating into two incomplete overlap of a range. So this is one population that develops two distinct diverging lineages within the same range. In, at the same time in the same place. It's probably the most controversial because it can be hard to see how a barrier forms in the first place when they are in sympetry. The simplest is when there is some sort of chromosomal change or genome duplication. Uh, this can often occur in plants and this can cause instant isolation through things like genomic incompatibility. As soon as you have a plant with a doubled chromosome number producing gametes, these gametes now may not be compatible. The wrong number of chromosomes or broken and rearranged chromosomes can lead to gametes that simply can't fuse together. It's more common in plants because so many plants can get around this by self-fertilizing. A whole new generation of offspring can be produced with this genomic change. So do these barriers form quickly or slowly? Uh, it, it really depends. Some can be very fast. The la in the last case where a genome duplicates in a plant, this can happen in one generation. At the other end of the spectrum, there are cases where even after millions of years, isolation is incomplete. Reproductive isolation barriers that aren't actually established until 20 million years. So th these can take relatively long amounts of time as well. How often do they fail? How common do we think hybridization is? Hybridization is surprisingly common. Uh, it's really hard to estimate how common it is and how widespread it is among taxa. But it seems like the common quote in the textbook is that maybe 30% of plants are capable of hybridization and maybe 10% of animals 
are capable of hybridization. Okay, Christian, the other thing I always ask people here is, is how did you get into this? So why are you doing the third year biology? You know, what led you to this and what's the goal? Ever since I was a kid, I had a natural fondness, an aptitude also to, you know, be out in nature and study natural systems. Uh, I've always been the outdoorsy type and I've always been intrigued by how the natural world works in terms of its complexities, but also in its very large, very large patterns and processes. I knew for, I think, most of my life that I wanted to study biology and that's what I'm doing now. I particularly have a fondness for uh, ecology um, and evolution. It's something that seems to be highly intertwined with what I've always wanted to do. Ever since I realized that I could turn that potentially into a career, I worked at doing that. Um, so I, I'm here studying uh, not just evolution, but also ecology. Uh, I'm studying a plethora of things uh, in hopes of becoming an ecological researcher in the future. I've uh, I've been working in the in Dr. Rehan's lab for quite a while now, and I've been uh, working on a lot of ecological studies uh, at different scales. So uh, I'm collaborating with uh, some PhD student on looking at urbanization gradients and how they affect the richness and community diversity. I'm looking at also at pollinator interactions um, and the how the diversity of uh, bee niches, uh, how the availability of floral resources um, and all of that are affecting uh, bees on an urban gradient here in the GTA. I'm also looking at behavioral ecology um, and I'm quite interested in looking at how the manipulation of some social hierarchies in certain small bees are affecting the rates of different behaviors directed towards other individuals within the nest. So thank you to Christian for joining us this week and explaining the basics of reproductive isolating barriers for the BioAudio podcast. This has been a presentation of the BioAudio podcast. I started BioAudio as a live Q&A session with a class when they had questions that were outside my area of expertise. Over the course of a few years, live sessions became some recorded sessions, and then a hosted interview, and then some audio files for the class. At the request of some of my students, I made them public as a podcast so they could more easily listen on their phones. I was not prepared for how enthusiastic the class was, and a few episodes soon became a dozen, and then enough to provide a free alternative to traditional textbook readings. The goal is to learn through interviewing experts and former students, and to make an alternative, free, and more inclusive resource. We are not perfect, but we're learning as we go. If you have enjoyed this episode, particularly if you are a student, leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on X at Dr. Underscore Bat Underscore Girl, on Mastodon at Prof Batgirl at ecoevo.social or blue sky at profbatgirl.bsky.social. 
where I post new episodes and new news from my research lab. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation of the BioAudio podcast.